I'm Modesta Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR and Most. This is the second part of our four-episode series where we take a look at America's policy challenges for the next decade. In this episode, I travel to Washington, D.C., where on behalf of the Concordia Forum and in partnership with the Atlantic Council, I hosted a panel to explore current challenges facing Muslim communities in the West and how we can do more to secure a brighter future for the next generation. The Atlantic Council is an international affairs think tank galvanizing U.S. leadership and engagement in the world. This discussion is led by Arshia Wajid, founder of American Muslim Health Professionals, an organization committed to empowering Muslim health professionals across the United States. I wanted to start by introducing our keynote speaker, Farah Pandit. Farah is the author of How We Win, a foreign policy strategist, former diplomat, and world-leading expert and pioneer in countering violent extremism. She served as a political appointee under three presidents, and most recently, she was the first ever special representative to Muslim countries, serving both Secretaries Clinton and Kerry. She has served on the National Security Council, at the U.S. Department of State, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. She's a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. In fall 2020, the Muhammad Ali Center named Pandit the first ever Muhammad Ali Global Peace Laureate. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you in person. The topics and themes could not be more important as we are, once again, witnessing huge changes in the human landscape of societies, policy, and priorities. I want to quote someone who knew a thing or two about design and landscapes. The late Iraqi-born British architect Zaha Hadid commented to The Guardian on the beauty of the Iraqi landscape. Quote, where sand, water, reeds, birds, building, and people all somehow flowed together has never left me, she said. And she continues, I'm trying to discover, invent, I suppose, an architecture and forms of urban planning that do something of the same thing in a contemporary way. I started out trying to create buildings that would sparkle like isolated jewels. Now, I want them to connect, to form a new kind of landscape, to flow together with contemporary cities and the lives of people. As we reflect on her vision, there is a connection to the shifts we are witnessing now in our world and the need for all of us to design, create, and build in different ways. It's an honor to have an opportunity to share some thoughts about Muslims in the West, those that live as minorities, and especially those generations that have grown up in the long shadow of 9-11. Millennials, Gen Z, and Gen Alpha make up more than 60% of the world's population. They are digital natives, the individuals that Mark Prensky describes as being native speakers of the digital language of computers, video games, and the internet. Within these generations and these generational shifts are cultural shifts as well. Each of these generations obviously have a different sense of themselves and their world because of things like technology, politics, and culture. These are the generations that are vitally important to understand and to cherish. Some of you are from these generations. 
some of you have, like me, seen life before and after 9-11 and understand the seismic shifts in tone, expectation, and safety. This remains the case today. America is a stark example. A 2020 Institute of Social Policy and Understanding poll found that in the United States, 60% of Muslims reported personally experiencing religious discrimination, a number that has remained steady over the last five years. Additionally, when looking at the perception of Muslims, the Pew Research Center asked Americans in three separate surveys in 2014, 2017, and 2019 to rate religious groups on scales ranging from zero to 100, with zero representing the coldest, most negative possible view, and 100 representing the warmest, most positive view. Muslims were consistently ranked among the coolest alongside atheists. These shifts are not just about a certain religion, gender, or race. These shifts have exposed the societal sinkholes in the West and demand innovative repairs. And the demands are coming from all kinds of places, including civil society, policymakers, and CEOs. How we think about these generations and what they've experienced allow us, in fact, to create strong, supportive architecture and powerful systems to allow them to thrive. That should be our goal. And when they thrive, their success will affect us all. I believe that goal is possible, despite the obvious challenges. Over the course of the last 20 years, I've had the chance to engage with Muslims on the ground in nearly 100 countries who have felt the impact of, quote, being Muslim in their daily lives, in big and small ways. For some, it was an awakening. It was an opportunity to think differently about their identity and to mobilize peers to express themselves, to take back the mainstream narrative about what Muslim means. For some, Muslim identity hasn't been a big deal. And for others, it meant something else, something powerful, but not positive. The emotional pull to retreat and feel less of themselves, resulting in negative thoughts and mental health challenges. The rise of us versus them ideologies has been devastating. Hate is a growth industry, and discrimination, prejudice, and violence is not abating. It has resulted in deep despair. This is evident in a study published by the GAMA Psychiatry Journal in 2021, which found that, quote, Muslims are two times more likely to have attempted suicide compared with other religious groups, unquote. Nearly 8% of Muslims in the survey reported a suicide attempt in their lifetime, compared with 6% of Catholics, 5% of Protestants, and 3.6% of Jewish respondents. Without a doubt, there have been serious changes in the human landscape that require attention before more damage is done. In Europe, what I witnessed in places as diverse as Oslo, Norway, and Palermo, Sicily, was a common response to others trying to define diverse Islamic heritages, lifestyles, and belief systems. The refrain I heard from youth was, do we matter? Do we even have a voice? 
Why are others defining who we are, even when European Muslims are running for office and winning, becoming thriving entrepreneurs, health workers, or teachers? It felt to those with whom I spoke that there was always so much farther to go to feel like they belonged. I recall a conversation with a Dutch Muslim who told me it was never enough, meaning he would always be considered an outsider. Here in the United States, American Muslims have also felt the sentiment, despite a very different history. Islam has been part of this nation even before it was the United States of America. In the 1600s, Muslims were forcibly brought to North America through the practice of slavery. It's estimated that anywhere between 10 and 15% of enslaved Africans were Muslim. I mention this because while things have never been perfect in this great nation, the attacks on September 11, 2001 changed America dramatically and the very experience of being an American Muslim. Over these many years, organizations like Concordia Forum have created space to address some of these changes and advance a more positive future for Muslims, asking questions like, how can we work together to engage? What do we need to do to make a difference? How can we pioneer new solutions? This goes to the heart of a response that is transforming societies in the West and creating new societal skylines. Today, we see dramatic difference in engagement in issues around society, culture, policy, and politics. We had witnessed creatives taking the lead in bursting old stereotypes and applying their skills and vision in sectors that have not traditionally been professional paths. New coalitions and movements are taking shape and growing. It's exciting to see and to recognize the changes that have happened despite the hardships. However, as I think about the pace and the focus of what needs to happen going forward, the heart of the effort for me is a question. What more must we all do to make sure millennials, Gen Z, and Gen Alpha can thrive? Their unique experiences are fundamental to a new landscape. Raised in a world connected through a swish of a finger, seen through the filter of wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, navigated through watching how minority Muslims are described, treated, and contained, and excited by discoveries and innovation, allow them to ask different types of questions and prioritize things with a different timeline. Social justice, equity, diversity, climate, business values, these generations are profoundly important, and we need to recognize that in our thinking and our doing. How? We must be global citizens. We must take part. We must find allies. We must speak out. We must engage. We must design efforts to build the landscape we know is possible. This means it's not just about the exciting new filmmakers or podcasters or writers or policymakers or teachers or doctors or entrepreneurs. It isn't about Muslim comedians or musicians or librarians. To make a new landscape, we need this and more. To flourish and repair and reimagine, we need to think differently about how to build bridges across religion, race, gender, and location. 
This is about all of us, all of society. This is about humans taking responsibility for creating the change by providing insights, ideas, and support for those who want to do good and finding ways to bring in others as well. It's about teaching and living with kindness and civility and compassion. It's about learning about those who are different than you. It's about thinking out of the box and asking what hasn't been built yet. A reminder, when Concordia Forum began, there was a need to create a new kind of network. Today, I urge the members and friends of the Concordia Forum, along with the broader Atlantic Council and its partners, to ask, what do we need to create through the force of our networks that has not been built before? Zaha Hadid's vision to flow together means that we need all parts of society, a broader vision, and the focus to build a new human landscape that includes all of us, including Muslims. Thank you. Thank you, Farah, for delivering a very powerful keynote. 9-11, rise in Islamophobia, intersectarian conflict, bullying and discrimination of women wearing hijab, or men with long beards, war and conflict in Muslim countries. These are just some of the challenges facing Muslim communities in the West. Our panelists today will address these issues and provide insight on the path forward. So with that, I would like to introduce you to our first speaker, Salam al-Muryati. Salam is the president and co-founder of the Muslim Public Affairs Council. He is expert on Islam in the West, Muslim reform movements, human rights, democracy, national security, and Middle East politics. He has spoken on Islamic interfaith issues, democracy, human rights, and conflict in the Middle East, Balkans, and Transcaucasia. And he also testified before the House of Representatives, a committee on Homeland Security. With that, Salam, I'll give you the floor. Thank you, Arshia. Thank you, Concordia, for this very important conversation and panel. And I agree, Farah delivered a very powerful opening set of remarks and a lot for us to talk about. When discussing challenges that are facing Muslims in the West, I think we have to look at both internal and external challenges. And while much of the discussion here is talking about the external challenges, as the Quran says, God will not give you change until you find change within yourselves. And so what, what are the changes we need to make internally for us to be better prepared to deal with the challenges externally. And there are many, but I think in general, since we're talking about future generations of Muslims in the West, young people in general, what do they think? And are we communicating with them? I think those are the two questions that we have to ask ourselves first. In general, when discussing these issues with this demographic, there's a feeling that there's no space for them in our community. There's no space for them in our mosques, for example, that they feel alienated and that in general, there is no concern for their issues, or at least there's no real action for their issues. So when it comes to social justice, do we understand the language of social justice when dealing with this demographic? They also feel that there's too much judgmentalism in our religious space, that they are judged by the way they look or the way they think or the way they act. And we all know that when we were young, 
we wanted people to give us that opportunity, regardless of how we were a bit too reactive and restless. And so do we address those concerns that they have in terms of their placement in our community? Then in terms of the external challenges, I think the the two issues that we face as Muslims in the West is that Islam is still seen as a foreign religion. It is the Eastern religion, whereas there's the Judeo-Christian tradition. And this is done mainly to exclude Muslims from society or from public affairs in Western society. Islam is a universal religion, just like Judaism, Christianity, and other faiths. And what we see is this issue of Islam versus the West, as if Islam is a geography and the West is a faith. And so this continuing friction of Muslims integrating into uh, our society so that we can be accepted as partners in the social objectives of our society is still a major challenge. And when we look at other societies that commit genocide against various populations or occupation or war, what they frame these communities as being, number one, being foreign, they're not indigenous to their populations, that the way the Uyghurs are challenged in China, the Rohingyas in Burma, the Bosnians, even in the Balkans, are not considered real Europeans, and so on and so forth. So they're not considered indigenous to their societies. And so being viewed as that foreign religion is still a major challenge and danger for us as American Muslims. Then there's this notion that we are here to take over society, this idea of sharia, even though people don't know what sharia means. They don't know the first thing about sharia, but they say, oh, you have sharia and you're trying to take over our constitution. And then we, for some reason, are singled out as being violent, even though, for example, white supremacy, white supremacist violence has surpassed any other group. The majority of our national security endeavors and our budgets and our worries is dedicated to dealing with the quote-unquote Muslim threat, the white supremacist threat, is just not considered with the same gravity. So all these issues are challenges that are facing us in terms of U.S. public affairs and American Muslims. What I would propose then for us to be discussing is, number one, how do we make Islam an American religion? What is the American Islamic identity? How can we change our reference point from looking at Islam in terms of, oh, we have to look to the Middle East as the reference point for religious scholarship and religious leadership to what is the American Muslim religious leadership and how they fit in terms of identity formation and in terms of a reference point for us. And I think it's it's happening in terms of American Muslim religious leadership, but it has not achieved that critical point or critical moment where the public and the American Muslim community, for that matter, considers American Muslim leadership as the reference point. So making Islam understood as an American faith like every other faith, and what is that American Islamic identity, is critical. Then in terms of other internal challenges, we have a long ways to go in terms of including Muslim women in our circles and giving them that leadership. Definitely there are more Muslim women taking leadership roles in various organizations. But when we talk about the Shura Council, when we talk about community forums where mosques and their leadership are involved, do we have that women representation in those forums? Thank you, Salam. Our next guest is Imam Sayyid Kashmiri, who is Ayatollah Sayyid al-Sistani's representative in North America. 
He is the founder, vice chairman, and religious affairs director of the Imam Mahdi Association of Marjaya, an organization aimed to support Shia community in North America. And he's a chair of Council of Shia Muslim Scholars of North America. Imam Sayyid. Thank you, Shia. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you all. No doubt Islam is part of the Western communities. We, need, we don't need to discuss about that. As we heard a good point from Farah and Salam, Islam is growing in America, and generally in Western countries as well. The population of Muslim communities, according to so many statistics, um, Pew Center and Gallup Center, you see we can find out 2% of a good number uh, of the population are Muslim people. All these Muslim people who came from different countries, they are diverse. And the 60% 60, 60 of them are young. Still, we see so many. If we want to go through some manifestation before talking about the challenges that Muslim people face in Western countries, there are manifestations that needs to be considered and think about. One is the huge gap between old and new generation. And culture and understanding religion and the duties. Fragmentations between Muslim groups, communities, due to their ethnicities and sects, school of thoughts, even though Islam is their main identity. Also, they are so behind in integration and getting involved with the other communities, which they uh, usually, unfortunately, either be isolated isolate themselves or be melted in other communities. However, talking about challenges, I'm going to focus on a few of them. The main challenge or all challenges is mixing between religious identity, cultural identity, and citizen identity. We, from our perspective, as Shia Muslim communities, we face same, but we try to relate this message to the Muslim communities in the Western countries, including the United States, that our religious authorities insist and gives direction and their teachings is all about be good citizen, integrate, while you maintain your religious identity and noble culture. But in reality, when we come to practice it, we face a big conflict between religious identity, religious cultural, and citizen identity. To solve this, we have to identify some of these challenges. In my draft paperwork, I found out maybe 17. I'm going to mention just five of them and leave the details for other colleagues here. One of them is we are missing Western unique identity. As long as Muslims in the West don't find their unique identity, they will rely and they will still continue to depend on overseas communities. We are relevant to each other. Islam is our religion here and overseas. But when we don't realize our unique Western identity, then we will rely on overseas more and more and that will bring many challenges to us and put us in difficult conditions. Civil engagement. We need to understand why Muslim communities still are not getting involved in civil engagement 
And one of the reason is because they come from countries, we have relevance, our people there, which many of those countries governed by dictatorship governments. If the Muslim communities in Western countries try to do some civil engagements and become involved in political engagements, their families, their relevance there in their mother countries will be under suffer and their oppressions. And that needs to be discussed as well. Third, the empowering. We know many of Muslim communities are refugees. Over 40% of current Muslim in the West are refugees. Refugees, unfortunately, when we welcome them here, they be neglected and they left it alone without any empowering, any enough and strong programs or initiatives to help them to be strong and practice their citizenship in a better way. For example, healthcare issues, job issues, domestic violence, discrimination, also as known Islamophobia. Refugees and Muslims who come to this country and we welcome them, we try to help them, we, will, we try to give them a new opportunity. It is not enough, it's good, but not enough. They need more support, they need programs, initiatives to empower them. The last one I like to focus on religious teachings. As we heard about hate or discriminations or Islamophobia, everything, when we put our fingers on any sensitive topics relevant to Muslim communities in the West, we want to fix it, we want to maintain it, we want to work on it. Finally, it goes to teaching. And because the main identity of Muslim communities is their religious identity, then we have to think twice about from where we have to generate and instruct our religious information. Still, we have no Islamic college or Islamic university in Western countries to provide Muslim community good scholars, good teachers, good instructors. Still, our communities try to bring scholars from overseas, and try to bring translators from overseas, try to bring academic teachers from overseas. And because they are from overseas, because they are not engaged with the Western cultures, their teachings comes with ideology, and that ideology not necessarily will be helpful for our community here, and specifically for our new generation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Imam Sayyid. Our next speaker is Dr. Debbie Almontasar. She is an internationally recognized, award-winning educator, entrepreneur, speaker, authority on cross-cultural understanding, and author of Leading Wild Muslim, The Experiences of American Muslim Principles After 9-11. She is an influential community leader and the founder and CEO of Bridging Cultures Group, Dr. Almontasar is also an advisor on cultural and religious diversity issues, the board president of the Muslim Community Network, and also sits on the boards of Yemeni American Merchants Association, Therapy and Learning Center Preschool 21 and 21, and the New York City Department of Education Diversity Advisory Board. With that, Dr. Almontasar. Thank you so much, Arshia, and assalamu alaikum, peace and greetings, everyone. I was tasked to speak about challenges in getting involved in urban politics, specifically for American Muslims. But I always say what we need to do with challenges is also find opportunities. So what I'm about to share will most definitely also be offering some opportunities that we must, as American Muslims, be able to see 
as important things that we need to address as we do this very important work. As a practitioner, uh, educator, as well as bridge builder and community engagement, practitioner in New York City, across the state, and nationally, uh, there have been a lot of trends that I've seen over the years that really have been a huge challenge for our community. First and foremost, many American Muslims lack the understanding of how important it is to be engaged politically. They don't see the how high the stakes are for our community to be engaged. And what does that engagement mean? In addition to that, there is also a lack of candidates who give our community the credence that they deserve. And what do I mean by that? Um, there are many candidates that are outside of our community that are running, particularly in very high populated areas with American Muslims. And it's always an afterthought for them to engage our community. And so why does this happen? It's because of our lack of engagement and them seeing us as important stakeholders in this process. Another point is the lack of courage um, to demand a seat at the table. We have a large population of the American Muslim community that are not politically engaged. We have people across the country that are, but we must surpass the number of what we have today. And we do that through political engagement, making sure that everybody um, sees themselves as important stakeholders in this. Another aspect that also drives people from being civically engaged is also when we see how foreign policy plays out during political cycles, you know, during situations that happen overseas. And many American Muslims who are engaged see how these things play out and feel a sense of betrayal by the unfair and unjust way that other countries are being treated, specifically their home countries. And so this is, you know, a dichotomy that we have to face and think about how do we address this? And the one way that we need to address this is the only way we are gonna make any change back in our home countries is by being politically engaged in the United States and building a political force, um, building a political base to be able to influence foreign policy. Another aspect that I also wanted to talk about is we need a mind shift. And that mind shift is basically stating that we have a voice and our vote matters. And only when we do that are we going to be able to basically deal with these uh, challenges. What we need is to encourage American Muslims to volunteer on campaigns. That's a start. And we're seeing that movement across the country with many of our millennials and Generation Z, et cetera. And the more that we um, support them and the more that we engage them in this process, what we are doing is actually cultivating the next generation of leaders who will one day be representatives from our communities, who will one day run for office. And the only way that you can do that is you build that experience. In addition, what we need to do is also push candidates, candidates who are running in our local vicinities to hire people from within the American Muslim community. Last night, I've engaged with a political official in New York City who is running for a very high office. And the first thing that was brought up in the conversation as a welcome and opening was basically saying, I've had the great experience to meet Muslims in the aftermath of September 11th. I worked very closely with them. I appreciated them denouncing terrorism. 
and I worked with them and I will continue to work with them to make our country safe. That triggered me. 22 years later, that should not be the conversation or the welcoming remarks. The welcoming remarks should be, I am so proud to see a large American Muslim community in my state and I will work with you to address the needs and concerns of your community and you are a valuable member of our state that we want to hear from you what are the needs and the concerns and how can we partner with you to make our city and our state great so that way we can all be stronger together. So I'm still processing that event and this candidate will hear from me, trust me. But why do I bring this example up is because we need to push them to have American Muslims on their campaigns. If she had an American Muslim staffer who was coaching her and helping her understand the American Muslim community, her opening may have been very different. And that is right now a priority for us. This is the opportunity that any candidate coming in front of us needs to understand. Do you have staffers on your campaign? And what is your plan to have American Muslims in your cabinet if you win? So these are really important things that we need to start shifting in our minds to make sure that we are getting candidates to take our issues seriously and take our community seriously. We have talent. We just need them to tap into it. In addition, I also want to say another opportunity is to rewire ourselves in delivering tangibles for our community and making sure that it is a non-negotiable with any candidate that sits in front of us. We need to make sure that our community gets a piece of the pie. That piece of the pie is funding funding for our nonprofit organizations, funding for our you know, companies that are doing groundbreaking work and making sure that they are seen and recognized as valuable assets in this country. We also need to make sure that religious accommodations are adhered to, and I'm not just talking about the workplace, but in our food sourcing. There are people that are dealing with our food that are not from the American Muslim community or understand what halal certification is across this country who are handling our food without the proper halal certification. And it is our priority right now as American Muslims to engage in that dialogue of how halal certification should be and who should be serving that food for us. I learned a lot through this pandemic of what halal food means and how it should be produced and who should be handling it. And it is our right as American Muslims to make sure that vendors that are getting contracts from the federal government, the state and city governments are adhering to these religious guidelines, but most importantly, empowering our American Muslim small vendors to be able to provide this. So how do we do this, right? Challenge, opportunity. We do this by making sure to promote American Muslim vendors, making sure that we are highlighting those people who are doing groundbreaking work to actually support our communities. But most importantly, and this is something that I'm very passionate about, is also holding President Biden accountable to conduct the disparity study that he talked about for Arab Americans. He talked about hiring a commission or putting a commission together that was actually going to look at the disparities of Arab Americans. When we look at how the Arab American community is comprised in this day and age, the majority of Arab Americans are Muslim but yet they are not seen as minority-owned businesses. And so the dialogue and the conversation for all of us to empower American, Arab American Muslims to be able to compete 
for contracts and to be able to support and provide the opportunities for our community has to happen. And the only way that we could do that is enforcing this and asking uh, President Biden to make this a priority. This was a priority on the campaign. It needs to be a priority um, that is delivered for our community. Lastly, it shouldn't just be on the federal government. This has to be a dialogue that we also have with our state officials and our city vicinities. Um, and what we've done in New York City is we've made this a non-negotiable for every level of government in New York that we wanted them to do a disparity study to show how Arab Americans are disenfranchised. As you all know, Arab Americans are considered white. Don't ask me how and why, I could do a whole nother panel on that alone. But the time has come for us to help our government to understand that though they have this designation, they certainly don't have the white privilege. And the time has come that we need to change that. It's wonderful that the South Asian Pacific Islander community, which the Pakistani, the Indian community, et cetera, is a part of and has that opportunity to be minority owned businesses, but now we must expand it. And the way that we expand it is through political engagement and making sure that the governments that we have in our local and our federal government understand this and see this as a priority. Thank you for joining us on this episode of PR and Mars with me, Mudassar Ahmed. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Stay tuned.